Hello, my name is Sylvia Frost and I'm a book cover designer and paranormal romance author of books like Moonbound and The BBW and the Beast. Uh, recently, I've decided to start a podcast with my great friend, Mary Novak. Uh, so hello, um, I'm Mary Novak and I'm a developmental editor for a number of writers, including Sylvia. And the impetus for us kind of starting this podcast is... Well, you know, if you have ever taken a trip around forums like K-Boards or Facebook groups with authors, there's lots and lots of resources devoted towards how to publish and market your books. And there are also lots of resources devoted to, like, craft of how to make your books better. But I found there was a real missing whole of sources that kind of looked at what is it that sells in the indie market and how do we think about craft in the indie market and not just kind of generalized discussions about what makes a good story. And for my very first episode, I, I thought that we would actually kind of do this self-centered thing and talk about my books and especially my experience with my friend Mary and uh, developmental editing my books. So, a little bit about me. Um, as I said before, I'm a paranormal romance author, and I launched my first serial, and uh, it sold okay. Uh, it settled around twenty or 30000 in the Kindle store, um, but it was a serial, and I got up to three installments, and I was nearing the finish line, and I just could not finish this book in a satisfactory way. I knew it was because I had some plot holes and some other stuff. And, but I was just feeling really unhappy with my craft. And lots of readers have responded really positively to those books. And I, I like them. I think that they're not bad. But there was something missing. So after I, I finished the fourth one and I pushed it out there and it did okay. But to be frank, sales were really, at this point, pretty bad. I was nearing only about $300 a month. Which is not terrible considering that I had waited almost six months to publish the last one. And uh, the books themselves were only $2.99, but it's not anywhere near the place I wanted to be. So I met Mary actually at a self-publishing writers group meetup, and she was in the process of beginning her journey as developmental editor. And I'll let Mary talk a little bit more about what that means and how she kind of helped to energize my second series, which we'll talk a little bit about in a second, too. Well, sure thing. So um, what a developmental editor is, is this is a type of editor who starts with an early draft of your book and says, well, here's, you know, these characters are working, but this character, uh, I really hate him, and this is supposed to be your hero. And so talking a writer through how to change their writing, how to, how to adapt to make everything flow, um, to make the content flow, to make... The, you know, the pacing be right, the dialogue be on point. So all of that sort of work is what I do. And I... The yeah, very... so basically everything that I was struggling with, like all these things, if you're a writer, you're like, oh, I just wish I could do this. Like not commas, right? Right. And so, no, yeah, the com- commas and things, uh, when, when you think of an editor correcting typos, correcting spelling, um, that type of work is called copy editing. And so developmental editing is usually done earlier than copy editing because you don't want to need to do the copy editing twice on completely different copy. And so developmental editing is trying to um, 
you know, just make the, you know, help the book to flow, help, you know, start, get the substance of the book working. Right. You know, Mary had done some editing work in the past, but she wasn't currently full time. And I knew that I needed an, a developmental editor. I wanted to really take my work up to the next level because one thing I've seen and I very strongly believe and I think in later interviews that we have with some of these top-selling authors like Annie Belay and um, I think we're also going to get Beth, Beth Rivas on and who else am I missing? Well, we, we read and talked about T.S. Joyce. We read and, and talked about yeah. T.S. Joyce. We didn't interview her, but we've, we've inter- we're gonna, we have interviewed and are going to interview some top sellers. And one thing that we hear them say is there is this misconception that sort of substance isn't, isn't as important. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really, really is. And that you can somehow just write a book to, quote unquote, to the market. And, uh, and that means like, you know, just sort of paint by numbers booking and that will somehow make you a bestseller and it's just not the case you have to make a good product and so I think a developmental editor is the first step step for that especially for people who aren't necessarily who feel like they might have something that's that's lacking in their own writing and so what happened is I worked with Mary for my next two books the BBW and the Beast and uh, Cinder's Wolf, and they're doing pretty darn great right now. They're both in KU, but BBW and the Beast, I think, went up to around 700 in the Kindle store organically. This was with no ad push. I just dropped it to 99 cents and pushed it out to my newsletter in a Facebook group. This is no additional ad money buy. Um, and then Cinder's Wolf uh, is a little bit longer so it's 3.99 it's a full length novel and it's sitting around 6 or 7000 at the Kindle store now disclaimer by the time i say this the amazon gods may have frowned upon me and you'll look at my books and you'll be like they're 200,000 in the Kindle store Sylvia like what are you talking about but at one time and they they by were, golly by golly they were selling um, and I really think that a lot of this has to do with the kind of work that I did with Mary. Um, and that's why I wanted to kind of bring her in as an expert as we kind of talk to these best-selling authors. And Mary, do you want to talk a little bit more about like what, what our podcast is going to look like? Well, the, pod, the podcast going forward is um, interviewing authors any chance that we can, but also um, talking about authors. And in all cases, we want to read three or four of these top-selling authors' top-selling books. And by doing that, what we're really looking at is what do we see that we think makes these successful? I mean, we can talk all day about covers and titles. All those things are important, but it's also looking at, well, wow, this person's settings are so organic. I just felt like I was immersed. And really looking at what's what we see as working in some of these books that are working in sales. Yeah, and a lot of times what works in one genre won't work in another. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times when you look at craft books, there'll be a lot of discussions of like, oh, you know, make your settings rich. But, I mean, we say stuff like that, but more than that, I think we'll say, oh, you know, in a shifter book, like... You might want to, if you're going to set in a rural area, you need to have these kind of details. Or if an urban fantasy, you know, maybe the setting should have this kind of feel. Or you can enrich your setting in different ways for different Mm -hmm. genres or, you know, all kinds of things. So, and we're going to cover everything. I mean, obviously, as I'm a romance novel 
there's going to be a lot of romance, but not just by any stretch. Right. I mean, to give one example, the way something we'll talk about today, the way that romance characters need to connect with each other in a romance novel is a completely different beast from the way that romantic characters, even the heroine heroine, might need to connect in like an urban fantasy novel. Yeah, for sure. Well, so that said, why don't we just get into it? So Mary has worked with me on my books and she worked with me on both BBW and Cinders. So so would you like to talk a little bit about what that process looks and what kind of value you feel you added? Because I know you added a lot, but okay. I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. Well, let's um, focus on the Cinders Wolf because that, that's the longer project and I did a really intensive um, developmental edit for that. So Sylvia passed me the full text of her first draft of Cinders Wolf. And my, my personal process is that I start making content comments on the text the moment that I start reading. Um, I personally find that if I read the text and then go back and comment that I lose a lot of the immediacy of my reactions. Things don't seem as funny or they don't seem as draggy. And so I start making comments and it's usually going to be on Cinder's Wolf. It was over 500, you know, comments out in the margin of her text as well as some um, change text in the text. And these comments are, the first time that I do this, the comments are really just my reaction in the moment. Sometimes it's positive, sometimes I think something is hilarious or really touching, and I want the author to know that. A lot of the times, the first time I'm making notes like, well, you know, that seems really selfish. And, um, but I haven't yet thought about, well, what's gonna fix that? Because that's something that I get uh, that, that will hopefully come to me at, you know, after I've done the first process. So. I um, read through the book once, making hundreds of comments. Um, I write a comment letter. Uh, usually these are, and they could be like three to six pages, depending on how much there's to say. They'll cover things like plot and character. But for example, in this romance, I also covered, well, here are some of the needs of the romance genre that uh, you know could be addressed in this way, in this overview letter. And then I go back over the commented up text. I read everything again very carefully and change the comments to go in the flow of what I've now decided will be helpful. Um, in uh, Cinder's Wolf is a good example where to me the ending, in the ending of Cinder's Wolf, she's been saving her business and then at about the seven... Well, you don't want to talk about... I'm I sorry. can talk about the, what the plot is so that people have some context okay. for what it is. Okay, so... So, I, so okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'll just... Just so that, like... Take it away. I think people will understand better, like, what Mary added if they understand right. context. Kind of what yeah. it looks like. Yeah, context. What's that? So, um, basically, a little background on the second series. My first series was very... I'd call it paranormal romantic suspense. There's um, There are short novellas... The hero and the heroine were ultimately very opposed to each other. They were at odds. There was a lot of angst, a lot of violence, a lot of general unhappiness. There was, of course, a giant cliffhanger at the end of every installment. But it didn't do as well as I wanted it to, even though I had these giant cliffhangers. And I think the reason was I was not as clear on my characters as I wish I would have been from the beginning. And that put me in some tighter spots by the end. I was kind of discovering my characters as I went, but 
when you do that, I, I had a kind of a generalized idea of where I wanted them to go, but the particulars of how they were going to get there, I was sort of hoping would just come to me. And for many authors, I'm sure that works, but it didn't, it didn't work for me in terms of feeling 1000% satisfied. And the problem with writing as a serial is once you have installments one or two out, you can't just go back and retcon stuff. Although to be honest, I did a little. And so for my next one, I decided, okay, I'm not doing a serial again, unless I finish the whole thing before I publish it. Because it just didn't emotionally it was way too taxing to to write in pieces and then not be able to go back and fix stuff after i saw problems yeah. that had emerged later yeah i would really struggle like as a writer yeah. i know that i would hugely struggle with that as well you kind of either can power through or yeah. you know you might just need to have it all in hand by the end right i've discovered that as a writer i am someone who needs to have be able to go and revise back to the beginning after I finished the end not just that I know the end because I had the whole thing clearly outlined but there are some things that you'll find that you'll discover when you'll write but anyway so I knew that I wanted to write complete stories the length of them was kind of I wanted to do longer I wanted to do complete novels because that's kind of what can that's theoretically what sells the best serials work well because you can publish quickly but in terms of your actual bang for your buck I think people's people readers like novels so there's that I wanted a plot that I could really hang my hat on. But so I knew I needed some, I needed a structure to keep me on point. And so I decided that fairy tales would be great because A, everyone loves fairy tales. Um, and please, if you're reading, it, please, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, I know what I'll do, I'll write a shifter fairy tale retelling because that seems to be selling what's hot. I will say, please don't. <laughs> Not just because the thing that I did the first time was I kind of thought oh shifters are selling and are hot and I'll just write shifters um I, I wasn't really thinking carefully about what I needed as a writer so maybe fairy tale retellings work great for you but I I would really caution you to think intensely about what stories can you tell that someone isn't telling a lot of right now instead of just saying doing the exact same thing and even more than that, where's your heart? Where's your heart? What do you like? And I've always loved fairy tales, as I told Mary early. I was even prophesized by a witch when I was younger, so it's like a very... So she wasn't a real witch, but I was a real prophecy, and it did come true. Some say witch, others call her kindergarten teacher. Other <laughs> but either way, she was right. And uh, if you want to hear the, what the prophecy was and how it came true, tune in, I don't know, five episodes from now, when we remember, or you'll never know. Anyway. Okay, so I, I really, I, I found something I liked, and, I, and it gave me a structure to work with. And so then I wrote this full-length novel of, I wrote a small 20,000-word novella, which is BBW and the Beast, which is a retelling of, you guessed it, Beauty and the Beast, um, which just flew out of my fingertips. It was so easy to write because I already had this plot, and I already knew the characters, right? They're already characters you knew. And then I was able to just sit and put my own little tweaks on things. So that was step one. And the reason I was able to do that so quickly was it was for an anthology and it had to be 20,000 words. Um, and so actually I remember when I sent it to Mary, there were lots of times when she's like, well, you know, if you wanted to, you could add and flesh out this. And I did want to, but I just couldn't. And so I just couldn't, I couldn't mess my own self up because I just didn't have space to, you know, or time really, because I was on a deadline. So that was that and that did really well. So then I did Cinder's. Um, which I did have space and time to mess myself up <laughs> because I wasn't under this constraint. And it ended up being about 70,000 words. And the plot of it is basically Cinderella is 
she you, is the daughter of this very rich father and modern times modern times oh yeah it's important to note so the plot of this is cinderella grew up this manhattan social life when she was younger and she always had this dream of starting a fashion company and kind of jet setting around the world on her father's dime but then her father dies and her stepmother inherits all the money or so she thinks and um her stepmother pulls her out of college and she start cinderella starts this cleaning business and you know some troubles in silicon valley and fast forward a bit later she her cleaning business is now in trouble and she needs to find investors and that's when we find our prince charming who is also a werewolf and he is this kind of classic alpha billionaire uh, venture capitalist um who is has met cinderella before and is trying to find her and so he's throwing all these balls and one of which he throws for entrepreneurs so she attends hoping to find an investor and there they meet and our story begins but this story had some issues when i turned it into mary and i'm really glad that she saw them and was able to fix them so do you want to talk a little bit about your process and working through that and sure um well, part of part, so again, my the, the process starts with just reading and commenting, and so Cinderella Cinder's Wolf had some really big things going for it to begin with. Um, every Cinderella chapter opens with some sort of to do list or other list that kind of goes with the theme of Cinderella being the Cynthia being this super organized um, person, and they were really funny, and so I was feeling you know it, had, it gave the whole thing a nice sort of like chiclet vibe it and i was really enjoying that the um a, a lot of the time with cinderella stories the other women are horrible there's you have a stepmother and stepsisters they're the ugly ones and a lot of stories really go. a lot of retellings go to town with that um this story had a really original take on making the everyone believable but you know that's not that they're always being nice to each other but that their motives were always very clear and they seemed like people so i was really eating up those aspects of the book um at the same time um rex the you know quote unquote prince the billionaire um was a handsome billionaire wolf and all of that is nice but he hadn't completely come together as a uniquely desirable a a uniquely desirable character and b a character who you could believe was the only person suited to like meant for cynthia and vice versa that that's part of writing romance novel romance is if you can hook into not just they're hot and they're attractive and they like each other and they're nice but there's a reason why these two are can only find happiness with each other then that really drives kind of the the energy of the book way way up and so looking for ways to sort of suggest for rex to be to kind of define himself more as a personality was one of the things that i did early on yeah that was super helpful i remember and that kind of adds like people it's a seventy thousand word book but people like write like I had to finish it late until the night and there's no action scenes there are no there are no i mean there's like no chases <laughs> no chase i mean there's like a very long drawn out chase but like it's not actually a chase right because he like like it he i mean he turns into a wolf and like tries to find her but he's never like running anyway there's no like gunshots <laughs> or anything there's no like no one's life is ever really in danger sort of but not really i mean the stakes are all relatively small right mm -hmm. i would say but by clarifying the characters, 
it makes the small stakes feel really big enough right. to make people turn the page way more than they had, I think, when, like, you know, when I shot a character in the chest. Right. And in a romance, it also, it also t- like, finding that character connection also turns up the heat on the sex scenes. No matter what they are and no matter how explicit they are, they will be stronger if the reader is also really feeling these characters going into it. And so that was something that started to really come out um, in, especially in revision, the, the two of them were hot people and they're enjoying each other, but they're also like trying things that you can really tell the other one would be really into because we know them both well enough. Yeah, they feel 3D. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's true. I think for me, like from a craft perspective, one of the things that was a fundamental shift for me is I, with my first book, I always kind of felt like, you know, they say write what you know. And I felt like I had to take pieces of myself to make stuff believable. But I think, you know, it's funny because I remember Mary asked me when she read Cynthia, she's like, oh my God, Sylvia, you just must be so organized. Yeah, I was intimidated. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm like the messiest person I know. My boyfriend, like, I'm sure when he hears this podcast, will be like, someone thought you were organized like what did you do did you like poison them like how did you get them to like hallucinate you being organized but part of that was there was a real love this is important there was a real love for the details of what it would be like to be someone that really sort of is into organizing their lives and that would make them feel better i mean cynthia does things like celebrate her rainbow wall of post-it notes which I thought was a great uh, detail in which I assumed I was going to see once I got, <laughs> you know, started visiting Sylvia. Right, but, like, the truth um, is, is I just, w- it's, like, it's aspirational. Like, right. I wish, I wish I could be as organized well, as Cynthia. I wish I enjoyed cleaning, and all my aunts and wish to be better at cleaning, actually. Right, so, but if that, but I think that what happened here was that that aspirational thing, which I completely identify with, also really um, drove you to new heights. Like there's right. the, the thing is that what made it work and what made me believe that um, that I was seeing this sort of like self-insert character when I wasn't um, was that there was just all this detail about having a life plan and you know you know just all you know it was it seemed like someone who had really lived that. Yeah. Well, it's like you know it, it was sort of a wish fulfillment. Yeah. The wish fulfillment, you know, lots of times people think of like wish fulfillment as being like a Mary Sue with superpowers, but like right. wish fulfillment for me was just being like a person who like was good at cleaning toilets. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who's like meditating while yeah, she's yeah. doing it. Too. Right. Right. Yeah. Who finds like scrubbing a toilet meditative. Like yeah. wouldn't my life be perfect if that right. was like what I could do. Right. But then she also, her best friend is a, her best, her best friend, Belle, who's in the first novella is really the self insert character. She's this like, author who's down on her luck because her royalties have stopped coming <laughs> and she um and, and she's totally messy she's mm-hmm. so messy that like when she enters into this bargain with the beast and he's like well i need a maid and she's like no you don't really want me to be your maid and she ends up breaking all his dishes and like so you know that's that's me but so cynthia is Belle's best friend so like even though cynthia is super organized mm-hmm. she never really looks down on people aren't i mean no you can't you can't write heroes and heroines who are like looking down on that's just never going to fly yeah Um, okay maybe sometimes but not in this case yeah (laughs) i mean and so that was really important it's like even though she had i mean and it's also important that you saw that she had she the irony is that she actually doesn't have her shit together at all um throughout this book but anyway i'm getting distracted just talking about myself which i kind of warned you would happen (laughs) but here it is 
Anyway, so let's talk more about the process, Mary. Sure. So I'm thinking about how um, late... This was, to me, really interesting as an editor to see this happen. Um, by about the three-quarter point um, of the book, the it's been about Cynthia... Like, we've, we've met Cynthia and Rex, and we've learned all about Cynthia's business troubles. And then um, they took this sort of sharp right turn and a jet plane... Um, so they t so they, so the, suddenly the two of them are jetting off to Michigan and they spend the rest of the story in Michigan. And my big reaction to that was what Cynthia has been trying to save her business this entire time. What happened to that? Like this is there's some lip service to how the Michigan trip is supposed to help, but it wasn't really connecting for me. And so at the time, my big thing was take him back to Manhattan. Like I think you might need to rewrite this last quarter. But I would get them back to, you know, the real issue is save this business. They both need to act like they care about it. And my suggestion was take them back to Manhattan to do it. Right. So, I mean, I think I should clarify here because this is a point that I think people think a lot. And I know I thought it for my first books is, well, first of all, if you're an indie, you're like, there's a lot of times when you can think, oh, why do I need really anybody? I can just press publish, right? <laughs> why do I, I, I mean... I, I love Mary, but she charges a fee. Why do I need to pay Mary to look at my book? And if, if at the very least, okay, you say I need some other people to look at it. Okay, I've got friends. Okay, so you, need, so you say I need some other people who actually read the genre to look at it. Okay, I've got readers. Okay, so you say I need some other people who read the genre and know half a thing about writing. Okay, I've got authors. I've got beta readers. And it's like you can, and I got all the way to that step of where, Actually, for my first series, I had, um, I had a, I had like a content er editor for like continuity, um, but not so much for he. They didn't talk so much about character or structure or plot, but kind of you know like, she was like facing the window last chapter. You know, maybe like don't put her in a garage all of a sudden. You know, um, and I had a, I had two copy editors. Um, and of course now if you look at the reviews you'll see that they say oh the editing on this is like not good and that's only because I went and messed in afterwards but originally when I first published I had I had reviews that are like oh the editing on this is so such a high standard um, and actually full disclaimer if you look at Cinder's Wolf you'll notice there are a couple of reviews that say the editing on it isn't very good either and that actually has nothing, they're talking about like copy editing mistakes. So first of all, that has nothing to do with Mary. And second of all, that has nothing to do with my copy editors either. My problem is that I'm a chronic editor. I'm chronically tinkering. And so I add in mistakes even after I've paid very, I know it's real bad, um, paid good money to fix things. But I think now I had a very nice reader friend who went and found all the typos that I added. And hopefully I will get no more reviews like that. But... The next point is, um, I had all of those things, but there were some fundamental issues with my understanding of the story that beta readers either couldn't see, or if they could see, they just would say, this doesn't feel quite right, but I don't know why. And I'm, even with Cinder's Wolf, I sent it off to some author readers, um, beta readers and author friends, and they said things like, oh, the last third of it, the plot kind of goes off the rails, which is good to know, but is not the same as what, what Mary said. Do? What am yeah. I going to do? Yeah. And so Mary gave me the advice of take them out of Manhattan, but the important thing that she gave them that advice was, well, you can tell them what you also said, because you said uh, something else that really... I'm, 
I'm not sure if I'm on the same page, but what I was going for was that on the one hand, what was important was save the business. Right. And that I'm trying to, hey, I'm trying to pitch. So I so, so that I'm, my first solution is just to make that clear. She's got to be focused on save the business. Right. They've got to work on this. But secondly, what the heck, I'm trying to think of, well, how would I do this? And the way that I would do it is take them out of Michigan and send them back uh, to the city. And there they can, you know, have a completely different last quarter, but they can be a lot more focused on the business. That did not happen. And the book that did happen is just fine staying in Michigan. What happened was Sylvia saw ways from the advice to rewrite that last quarter so that they did stay in Michigan. They did do all these things that were very important to her and that also work just fine. They do save the business there. So she found a better solution than I could have, which is what almost always happens, and I love it. Right. Well, I mean, to be clear, though, the reason I was able to find that solution was you said, here are the core principles that you need to do. You need to make sure that she does not lose sight of her business, which I knew but you kind of, you said, and the real thing that you said was really important was that she and the hero need to save her business together. Yeah. Um, that was the thing that you said that nobody else said that really clicked into place a lot of stuff for me. It sort of, it seems right. so obvious. And, well, because once we start saying it, it is obvious. She's got a business. He, she goes to the venture business, venture capital thing. He's a billionaire right. who's a self-made billionaire who made all the money himself. And so... If anyone could tell her exactly how to fix the business, it's him. And so, and yet, but she was really independent. And right, so, right. The, like, there was this whole, but but then making them find a way to cooperate right. really changes things. Well, so the real challenge is that I did not want it to be a book where she went in and got a billion dollars from her alpha boyfriend and then solved Ta-da! the business. You know, I did not want that to be the message. Yeah. Um, and so I really resisted having him come in and fix everything right but what I ended up doing after the feedback you gave me was to have them work together to fix the problem right and so it wasn't him just coming and solving it he was actually just a sounding board basically for her mm-hmm. to solve it and he was basically like a supportive partner you know and in fact he has this whole thing there's this really what I like this cool scene that's actually was not there before Mary's edits that I is actually now one of my favorite scenes in the whole book where they're in office trying to strategize ways to fix the business. And this scene existed before, but Mary pinpointed the scene and said it existed with her talking with her employees. Right. And she said, you, her and Rex need to have this conversation instead. Right. Right. And this is a lot of the flow of, I think, how a developmental editor tends to think is I know that for my own part, at least, um, I'm a really, really big picture thinker. And then I can zero down to very tiny details not so good at the in-between points, but the big picture and the tiny details really help for this work because the big picture is, what's the purpose of this book? It's a romance. What's the central challenge? It's saving this business. you know. And if we're going off the rails with all these other characters who are delightful in their own way, but they're not the they're not feeding the romance then they are not you know they're not doing their job you know somebody right. else has to do that job right and i think you know that's that's exactly right and you know and it just they so they work together to solve the main issue of the book but and then what was really cool is how that her issue then fed into his issue because his issue was kind of trying to control right. everything. Right. And so he knew that if he wanted to keep Cynthia around, because she had already run away once, 
um, a la classic Cinderella. Um, he knew if he wanted a chance with her, he had to be able to step back and not try to control. So he learned how to give advice, but not take over. Right. And um, and then he also, he's been having trouble kind of managing his werewolf drive. And he had this sort of choice where I can try and control everything and be as a human, or I can kind of let go and be a werewolf. Mm-hmm. And then they have hot werewolf sex in the conference room right after they've had this thing. So it was this really cool moment for me as a writer, I hope it conveyed to readers, where their issues, uh, the core problem of the novel, fed right into the sex scene and the intimacy. Right. Which is something that was totally lacking in my first draft. Right. And another that's another thing to kind of try to understand about what a developmental uh, editor should be doing is that um, this is not about, I always say this is, this is not about me rewriting anything, but one of the coolest things is seeing what's there. I talk about missed opportunities a lot and yeah. taking advantage of missed opportunities. So in the case of Rex, he had these control issues. He hadn't changed into a werewolf in like 10 years. Then when he did it, it kind of went off the rails because he sort of relaxed right into it. It was a little too, you know, that wasn't, I don't, I just don't think that was the main point on your mind. And so that, you know, he kind of, it was too easy for him. And instead, like to recognize what Sylvia already wrote is that this guy's major issue is control and sort of wanting to stay on the human side of his beast, um, but then needing the beast. And um, and to recognize that that's what he's about, suddenly a lot of things in a lot of scenes would just kind of fall into place. Yeah, it was really cool. I It was really, and the most important thing is like, even if, like, I... You'll hear us talk later with Annie Belay next episode, which we'll be publishing at the same time as we do this episode. I spoke when, when we spoke with Annie, and you'll hear in the interview next episode, is she said that she worries a lot. Like, do readers even notice? Like, do they even care? And I wonder, too. Like, I wonder what would have happened if I had done this first draft of this book out into the world. Right. Would it have really sold all that much more? And so here's my feeling, Okay. And let's say worst case scenario, it doesn't. Let's say that like I pay all this money for marriage developmental edit my book, and it gets no more sales. Okay. Two things about this. The first is actually the letter that Mary returned when she gave to me, as she said, because one of the things that I had asked her to focus on was kind of how will this? Can you look with an eye for selling my book? And she did a really good job of it. And she said, you know, the book that you have right now, I can see it really selling, um, but. I don't know if as a reader I would return for the next book because of the way it falls apart in the last third. You know, it's very possible that actually, because if you think of sales, right, they're not just like someone, for a standalone, I mean, this is part of a larger series where they're kind of interconnected, but this isn't like a serial where they, if they didn't read BBW and the Beast, they can't read the next one. So someone who's coming to Cinder's Wolf can look at that page, look at the cover, which I designed, by the way, if you have any interest in book covers, you can see my work at sfrostcovers.com, moving forward. And they see the blurb and they see the look inside and they might click buy or they might not click buy. And that, that decision might have actually been, Mary might not have actually had any influence on that decision, right? Yeah. But... What I think a developmental editor does is it ensures a level of quality that will keep them going to your next book and that will convert those readers into a devoted fan. Right. I'm seeing, like, and of course, you'll get higher, higher review averages. Cinder's Wolf, by far, 
has the highest review average. And the only the only negative reviews, there are a couple negative reviews on Goodreads that are like, I just didn't care for the characters. And sometimes that's going to happen. You know, if you're writing 3D defined characters, sometimes people just aren't going to connect with them. Um, and then the editing is, the copy editing was a little off. And that was all on me because I was tinkering. Um, but no one, in some of the, I have a very detailed, like, string of reviews on my first series that, like, when I saw it, I was like, oh, man, they're right. <laughs> like, <laughs> they found all these, like, plot problems and issues, and I was like, oh, geez, man, like, I really wish I had fixed those. But I don't have any of that. And so that's that's one, is a better customer experience. And two, uh, I feel much, I feel really good about the book. I feel excited to keep writing. I feel like I've leveled up as a writer yes. in terms of my skill set. Yes. I mean, we'll see that with the next book. I'm going to turn in another book to Mary very soon, and she's going to look at it, and she's been like, this is actually the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. So I never disclaimer. said anything like that. It never said. That's, it, it could still happen. Right? <laughs> oh, I could say it. Right, okay, right, okay. Right. I'm just, I'm just... No, no, she's never said anything yet, but <laughs> she hasn't yet seen this yeah. next one, Sleeping Beauty. So I think for me, it's just been such a valuable experience right. um and to be frank i i think copy editing and book covers and all that is super important but if i had to spend money on one thing mary would probably be on the list well thank you and i want to say you know i want to say too that, that that's i think sometimes underestimated until you've done it is yeah. that level up experience which i would completely agree happen which I get the huge pleasure of seeing with many authors because I read the first draft and then I make these suggestions and then they come, you know, they work on them and they come around with the second draft and suddenly it's a whole different thing. And, you know, you can tell that it's working when pieces have just started to all fall in together, when it's all making sense as a whole. And I think, the, I think for a writer, the experience of having that happen, of seeing yourself do that, of what you can do, that you couldn't do on your own because you got as far as you could on the first draft. That's why it was the first draft. And then to be able to, you know, just give some helpful advice and encouragement and then just see things blossom is huge. It's also a huge credit to any writer who can power into that experience because not everybody is in a place to do that all the time. You know, sometimes you wrote it, you want it out there, you get these suggestions and you're just kind of done. And that's a different headspace. But on, but when I really can tell I have a good partnership with a writer is when, you know, they, they give me the draft, I come back with all these things I come back with. And instead of sharing too much of being, feeling discouraged or anything, it kind of clicks and they're like, oh, yeah. Oh, that would be better, and I can totally do that. And then yeah. they do it, and it's better than I could ever have imagined and way better than I could ever have done. Yeah, I think, too, a lot of people, and, and even some of these best-selling authors will we'll talk to, will ask them, you know, we'll, again, we just had this conversation with Annie, and, you know, we can ask them about their editing process, and they may not use a developmental editor. And I think a lot of people see top indies who may not actually have this process. Um, although I know a lot, for sure, I know a lot, for sure do I know indies who have l multiple passes of editors without question um, but I think you'll see people use those and you can think oh well these top people don't use have this long editing process they only need a couple people to look over their work and um, 
what you might be missing is that they have done years and years and years of writing and practice right. and they've already had these level up experiences right you know it, what I mean it, it has to it's 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 within the writer because it has to do with being able to take in that moment and of, of like criticism yeah of telling you that something should be changed and be able to process it and be able to move forward with that in a positive way and that yeah. comes from you know that comes from the writer yeah and I think I mean, if you're someone who you've got a critique partner like Mary that you feel like you can just go to, I mean, I, I, I think Mary is really useful and just, you know, for all things and ways, I've had people like do bits and pieces of what Mary does, you know, individually, but I've never had someone who can do it all and communicate in a way that makes you feel energized. I think mm -hmm. that's so key. Like, you can go through a critique and just feel, and you do feel devastated by a Mary critique, I'm not going to lie. And not because she doesn't say anything politely, but just because it's that kind of experience where you go, oh, part of my, not part of my French, oh, fuck, you're right. Like, this is all things I need to do. But then, you know, a week later, you look at it and you're like, oh, yes, actually, this feels, feels so great. But the one last thing I'll say before I can feel Mary wanting to speak, because <laughs> I usually am all dominating. The energy is pouring, pouring <gasps> from her. <laughs> Is, um, <laughs> is I think you have to look within yourself mm -hmm. and you have to honestly look at your writing and say, am I writing to the standard of a best-selling author? And not like, not a best-selling author who maybe, you know, there are authors, and I might even be one of them at the moment, who sort of luck into an Amazon algorithm and who for, you know, a couple of weeks are sitting high on the charts. And you'll see those, but am I writing to the standard of the author who is consistently releasing high and who has a loyal group of readers and who is happy with their product and who feels like they're satisfying their fans continually, not because they're just publishing all the time. I mean, because there there are some people who do that and they do succeed, but I think the more, the longer someone someone's career goes, either because they strengthen naturally or because they work with an editor like, like Mary, you'll see, um, kind of an, an attention and ability and facility with craft and story structure and prose and all of that um, that kind of allows them to succeed right. over time. And so you have to look at yourself and you say, am I at the standard that I want to be at? And I had an honest look at myself and I said, no, mm. I'm not. So how am I going to get there? And, you know, that's when Mary came. And I wouldn't say I'm there yet, but I'm closer. Yeah, but what's important is that you sat down and did the work. And that I have not always been the person who is great at sitting down and doing the work myself. I totally, mm. I have, you know, there's no shame for that sometimes being how you feel. But the way that you elevate yourself is to be able to you know, take it in and sit down and do the work. And I also think that we're, we're sort of circling around a major purpose for this podcast in the long term, which is we're going to be reading selections from various bestsellers, uh, indie bestsellers, and talking about, like, what do we see that's making them really good? And yeah. it's eye-opening. Frankly, like, we all talk so much about how a certain level of success is luck and it's marketing and it's this and yeah. it's that. And neither Sylvia nor I actually, um, like, we both believe in things that succeed have something positive about them. And I would, I would feel foolish to leave that knowledge on the ground. You know, I would feel foolish to say, well, this, you know, sleazy trilogy is the, you know, this huge, huge seller. Well, that's because people like reading trash. Yeah. That, no, no, I yes. don't, I don't support that kind. I, I try to purge myself of that kind of thinking. 
any chance I can because something worked. Something worked for a whole lot of people. Maybe that should be our new title, Something Worked. Something Worked. <laughs> start with substances. I think start with substances is a little better. Anyway, yeah. keep going. But some, you know, something worked for a lot of people. And to try to stay open and look at what those things might be, you know, and what's really special that's happening on partly has frankly already kind of raised my standard appreciation for this is what it takes to sell big and be popular yeah like it is it's just it's not just luck it's not just marketing it's not it's it's really fundamentally a good product and what a good product means probably isn't if you're just starting now this is like your first podcast that you're ever listening to and you've just arrived on keyboards or amazon you decided i want to publish a book i've always wanted to write a book what your definition of a good book is, I'm going to bet you 10 bucks that it isn't the same as my definition of a good book or any indie who's been in this a while. And and by good, I mean something that sells. I, you know, I mean, that's our definition of good at this point. It just has to well, be. It's what, it's just how else are you going to define it? Yeah, we're working from what's popular. Somebody, you know, a lot of somebody's like this. And I would weigh, even if those lot of somebodies are very different from me politically or any other way. Gender, Gender, et cetera. Then I would still like to know what the magic is that connects with them. Yeah. I think that's super powerful and cool. Like how cool to peer under the veil of human nature and see what people really want. Not what they say they want. Mm -hmm. Not what they say... Not not to kill a mockingbird. And not, not what we think they should and want. Not what, and certainly not what they think they, they should want, but what they actually want. And to treat that with kind of an empathy and an understanding. Respect. And respect is going to be super powerful. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the times what they want won't intersect what I want, and that's okay. I have to find a way, like writing to market or thinking about what sells in a craft level is not selling out your writer's soul. This book that, you know, was actually... I actually sat down and focused on the craft, and that's why I worked with Mary. And uh, this book has sold a lot better. Right. And it's it's a better book, I think, you yeah. know? And and also, you know, like, I love working with Sylvia because Sylvia has, the, uh, you know, just a very solid understanding of marketing and thinks about, you know, sales figures and keeps track of, of, of all of of all of that and to theory. a level that, um, that I don't really approach. And where I come from and what really got me to the developmental editor point was I'm a reader and I want I I want a writer who will give me a good experience as defined by me you know I want a writer who will pick me up and take me someplace that I wanted to go and I sort of didn't know how much I wanted to go there and I'm all like everything about pretty much everything that I do developmentally um, as, as suggestions starts from the gut it start like that's sort of where a lot of the typical beta readers might stop. Is like this isn't working. This doesn't feel right. I'm kind of bored, and then it gets completely different to start tr- learning to raise what you're saying to. Well, I think the reason I'm bored is because this is all about uh, you know the farm, but I really want to know what's happening with those mice. Yeah, what is happening with those mice? I want that story. Like, whoa, what are the mice up to? Yeah, Yeah, I think this whole podcast is kind of being like looking at the kind of guts and viscera of people's, you know, reading experience and then analyzing it 
in, I don't want to say intellectual way because God knows I've never been to graduate school, but in a kind of thoughtful way. You know what I mean? <laughs> so we're like kind of taking a look at the popular in kind of a careful way that I feel like it deserves. Yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? The, that's really important to me. It's, yeah, me too. It's just personally, yeah, for both of us, that's just, that's, that's a priority is these are the things I love. And there are other great things that other people can explain in great detail how great they are. And that's, you know, bully on them. But as a matter of fact, I'll take Spider-Man. Yeah. You know, I'll take these, you know, popular things that I love. And I still see greatness and I still see the world in a drop of water in these things too. Yeah. And so that's kind of the spirit. And and so then the next step of that is how can I do that in my own work? I think that's a pretty nice impassioned wrap up. Um, but for all of those who are like, if I knew if I was me and I was listening to this, I'd be like, I want to work with Mary yesterday. So if you're finding you have that impulse, Mary, what are, what's your website? Can you tell us a little bit about how people can get in, how people can get in contact with you? So my website is msnovacedits.com. Everything in front is one word. So that's M-S-N-O-V-A-K edits.com. So they can just reach out to you for your contact form, right? Right. There's a contact form on the site, and um, to to some degree, we have to, you know, we will email about the project that you have and the different types of services um, that I offer. Um, and then they get yeah. a quote from you there. And then you get a quote. So her prices aren't going to be on her website, but that's okay. It's just because, well, it's pretty standard. It's actually fairly standard for yeah, this yeah. type of editing um, because part. I think part of the impetus is that um, some projects are just. They can be the same number of words, and they're much easier or difficult, more difficult than others. And yeah. So people leave themselves a little flex, basically. Yeah, I think that's true for sure. And so I guess the last thing I would say is uh, we'll be putting this on iTunes, and we'd love to hear your comments or your thoughts, and um, we might do a small listener question segment if we get enough questions or thoughts. That would very be short. cool. Very cool. Um, Unfortunately, we've already recorded our interview with the estimable Annie Belay, but we will be having interviews with people like Beth Rivas, uh, Anna Zairis, um, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Anna, uh, Tara Eden, hopefully, uh, Tasha Black, yeah, and people like that. So keep questions in your mind that you want us to ask authors. You do not have to be there by yourself perusing the Amazon bestseller lists trying to figure out how the heck T.S. Joyce sold so many books, you know, we can ask these authors for you. Yeah. Great. Okay, cool. Thanks so much. All right. Ciao.